G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode 15 of series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing a startup entrepreneur. It's harder than getting started. It's harder than getting to an MVP. It's harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have scaled successfully, including a few who have already been on Twista, such as Canva and Vado Catapult and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for Series 7. In this episode, we'll continue our exploration of the newly emerging crop of neobanking startups, examining one with a very different strategy to get to scale by growing beside an established bank. A neobanking we shall go in this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by .co, the domain name for innovators, entrepreneurs, startups, and creators growing extraordinary ideas online. Your brand wasn't built to blend in, so don't let it. Get a .co domain that's as unique and memorable as your one-of-a-kind idea. Find your .co today at go.co slash twista and take advantage of freebies, tools, and resources to get your idea off the ground. That's www.go.co slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit to your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybowes.com slash au slash twista. And This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by the University of Technology Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build the foundation for a successful career. To find out more about entrepreneurship at UTS and the UTS Startups Program, go to startups.uts.edu.au. from holidays last month. I had a chat with Mike Nichols, Rescue Mike, as he's known on this podcast. He mentioned that he'd signed up for a bank card and that it had changed his life. I did not believe him. Try it and see, he said. So I downloaded the app, set up a bank account via the app in about two minutes, and in a minute after that, I had a genuine, verified Apple Pay-compatible debit card on my iPhone. All of that in three minutes. And to get money into that account, I, I, I had a brand new pay ID. And once I figured out how to move money from my regular bank account, the bank account that I've had since the week I arrived in Australia 16 years ago, with one of the big four, of course, once I figured out how to move money with pay ID, I had money on that debit card and I started to use it. In fact, that was all I used. I went an entire week before I needed to use any cash at all. It was one of those moments when everything changes, when you go from zero to one. 
And that was my first real experience of the promise of neobanking, of banks that are built out of the latest technologies, mobile first, cloud-based, data-driven, light, nimble. That bank, it's named up. Well, I have to admit, I'm a fan. Dominic Pym is the co-founder of UP, and it's my pleasure to welcome him to This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, Dominic. Thanks so much for having me. That's great to hear that story. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I figured you'd want to start with a customer testimonial because it's it's absolutely authentic. Tell me about UP. What is UP? I mean, it's a neobank. Sure. We have some understanding of that, what it is, but what is UP? Yeah, so I think the best way to describe UP is probably the first mobile bank in Australia. Um, you know, there's a lot of excitement about the, the neobank movement and who, who's doing what and there's lots of different people trying to do some things. We, we were fortunate uh, to have a crack at building a neobank, in inverted commas, uh, throughout Asia and then here in Australia, working with some of the big four banks. And it took so long, it was so frustrating that we then decided to jump in the deep end and do it ourselves. So, so we, were, we were lucky to be able to get to market really early and we launched last October. Um, and we very quickly announced we had 30,000 customers, then 50, then 70, then 100,000 customers. So now we've exceeded 100,000 customers. We've sort of demonstrated that there is a market for neobanks in Australia. And I mean, 100,000 customers out of a population of 24 million sounds small, but when you think that that's starting off of a zero base and without being billions of dollars in everyone's sort of major bank, that means that you've actually been able to find a product market fit that's working for 100,000 people. Yep. So what do you find your customers are, why are they using UpBank? I mean, are they similar stories to mine that they like the convenience? What is it that's drawing them to Up as a bank? Yeah, so I think, like, just firstly... Um uh, you know, 100,000 for us was like a really big deal because overseas... I'm sorry, I don't no, no, mean no, to no, downplay no, it. No, no, of course. Um, but I'll just say for, for the listeners, I guess, that overseas we saw in, uh, you know, Germany, the UK, the US, uh, Spain, France, we saw uh, neobanks launching and, and, and achieving 100,000 customers um, in about one or two years. And, and for us, that would translate in Australia to about 30,000 customers. So that's why when we hit our first 30,000, we were like, wow, this is actually proof that this can work here. Mm-hmm. And then 100,000 and beyond was sort of, you know, earlier this year, we, we announced that we're signing up more than 1,000 people a day. So it's growing very quickly. So this is, I guess, just, you know, to put it into context. Um, what, what The type of customers that we get, I would call everybody that's on our customer base right now an early adopter. Yeah. Um, because, as you say, there's by, a... By definition. Yeah, of course. There's a broad population group. Um, you know, we also... My company is a company called Ferocia and, and, and we, we uh, also build Australia's fifth largest banking platform. Like, so we just do two things, <laughs> sort of the first mobile-only bank and the fifth largest bank. So we have exposure to millions of customers who... Uh, well, actually 1.7 million customers who... Um, spread the whole demographic, they're completely national um, and, and so it gives us a good insight into the type of things people do in banking already uh, and then also what's missing from banking and what they might want. So mm-hmm. so certainly for UP we've found that it's tech savvy people, it's a younger skew, mm-hmm. like our target audience. We, we, we don't go out and say, like a lot of banks will go out and say, oh, you know, we're going after millennials or we're going after a young you know, audience or the university youth, students. Youth. Or, you know, the youth, exactly. Um, we, that's not really how we set about we just build cool things that are um, t- technology-led, which means that young people are attracted to them because young people, there's a generational shift, you know, to moving towards, you know, living on your iPhone or your Android or whatever it is. So so for us, um, we have our largest population group of customers is 19 years old and 50% of our customers are between 16 and 24. So, so very young skew. But also just from an advertiser's perspective, like that's the golden demographic. Yeah. Those are the those are the people that you want as customers. Yeah. 
Because if you get them now, the theory is that you have them as customers for the rest of their lives. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's certainly our view is that a lot of... Um, so, so going back to the question about sort of, I guess, neobanks, a lot of neobanks around the world have raised venture capital, um, you know, scaled their business very quickly. Now they're looking at how do they become profitable, how do they, you know, make more revenue. And then they're already talking about exits and some of them have exited. I mean, obviously Simple was the first in the world and they're a real classic example of after they sold out to BBVA, they spent the next couple of years just implementing a new core banking system and the innovation just died and the people left and all this sort of stuff. So it's still a great digital bank, but it's nothing, in my view, like what it could have been Mm -hmm. uh, if it had that chance. So for us, just going to the customer base, we have a view that we don't have a one-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan. We're building an annuity. We're building a a business that that can last 100 years or whatever. We don't have an exit strategy. We've never raised venture capital. So it's a little bit of a different approach. So, But this brings up something that I definitely wanted to touch on in this segment, which is that when you go to the website for Up, there is a page, and the page has your implementation plan on it. In other words, it is a public roadmap I, you rarely see that from any technology company full stop. I don't think you've ever seen that from a bank before. Not in that way. Yeah. Like some, uh, some overseas uh, banks have got lists of data on their web, a couple of bullet points or whatever, but yeah, not in that way. No, not, not, not in no. that way. Not in the way that's both apprehensible to the public, right? But also if you're an engineer, and so I open it up and I look at it and go, hmm, oh, mm, right? <laughs> as, as you'd expect engineers would around, when they look at a roadmap, they look at, okay, there's easy stuff here, there's hard stuff here, there's weird stuff here. Why are they prioritizing that? You're now doing development of the neobank for the next 100 years in public, you're doing it transparently. Take us through why you decided to do it that way. Yeah, I think I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's a really um, challenging decision, I think, for any company, as you say, to decide to sort of lay it all out for our competitors, for our customers, for the for the industry, you know, at large. Just by way of background, in in my travels, I I, I meet with a lot of banks, you know, traditional banks, incumbents, um, and a lot of the innovation teams and agile teams and development teams and design teams and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And it's been a resounding compliment from all of those people that we actually had sort of the guts to put the public roadmap out there, obviously, right? Um, But but the reason for me is the easiest way to describe it is really twofold. One is our head of uh, our head of product, I call him our chief imaginer, Anson. He was our first employee. He's been with us for a long time. Um, and him and I have been working on this project really for eight years, but, you know, like two years we've been specifically focused on up. Um, but it's been a long journey to sort of get to where we are. And so we have a lot of ideas in our head. And I, I, I sort of call those ideas the imaginings of what the future of banking could look like. And for us, even more than that, what the future of living could look like and how money is sort of woven into your life. And so we wanted to be able to communicate that to the world, but we also, um, at the same time as communicating that, we wanted to be able to um, sort of stem the flow of these more than 100,000, like hundreds of thousands of people contacting us saying, you should do this, why don't you do that? When will you have that? What about this? Have you thought of that? And so we built into our app um, and we're very active on social media. So we, we built into our app a way for people to be able to contact us and give us their ideas. And in the, in the early days, you know, prior to launch when we are just doing alphas and betas and things, Anson literally replied to every single idea, right? Then it became Anson and me. Then it became Anson and me and my Mike and Dan and Paul, and then it became like half a dozen, you know, or a dozen people. Eventually, we had to find a way to stem that flow. So the roadmap is sort of twofold. One is it provides the context 
um, the vision, like people say all the time, why aren't you building BPAY, why are you building blah? And a lot of the time we're building blah because it's the foundational stuff that you need in order to deliver the more complicated things. So we're still table stakes. A lot of the stuff we're building is still table stakes. So it does that. It communicates the context really well, but it also uh, sort of freed us up a bit to not answer the same questions a thousand times in a day, which is why don't you have BPAY or why don't you have joint accounts or when are you going to do credit cards or when are you going to do mortgages? So so I think um, one thing is to communicate and be completely transparent and to be open and honest in, in, in your in your, in your roadmap. Another is to actually, um, we're a very small team, so we're less than 40 people. And when we launched, we were less than 30 people. So for us to build Australia's fifth largest bank and to build Australia's first digital bank, how can we do that with less than 40 people um, and answer questions instantly for our customers? It's, it's, a, you know, it's a challenge. All right. So if you're directing customers to that roadmap, you're also directing your competitors to that roadmap. And I don't think your competitors are the other neobanks, right? All the neobanks, I think, are quite happy that there's a lot of neobanks around. Your competitors, in some sense, are the big four. And we'll, we'll come to that in, in more detail in our next segment. But do you feel the tension about how much you share and how much do you hold behind? Or is it really... Are you dedicated to a more what we call a radical transparency around this and what, what value is there beyond just lightening your workload? Is there a value in that openness? Yeah, I think there is absolutely. I mean, for us, it's uh, – I was actually talking to someone the other day about the up brand and the up brand represents a new way of doing things technology-led, being transparent being responsive, mm-hmm. being accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- those sort of things, we don't use those words anywhere, but they're just they're conveyed by our actions. So having the roadmap out there um, and having our um, competitors, well, we, you know, we win business from the incumbents, so having their competitors be able to see that, it doesn't scare us at all. Because we're technolo- the way we say it is we're technology-led banking rather than bank-led technology. And it sounds like a subtle difference, but it's an enormous difference. I, I worked with, um, uh, as a technology company, we have worked with banks for a number of years and tried to help them to deliver technology. We worked with one of the big four banks to deliver a, a, a digital bank in Asia. We worked on that project from the time we met them to the time that it was finished, it was shut down, two and a half years, and never got that to, into customers' hands. Whereas by comparison at Up, you know, we uh, within a few months we were we were in production. We're the first cloud-hosted retail bank in Australia. We're the first cloud-hosted bank for GCP, Google, you know, Google Cloud platform in the world. Um, and so we were able to do all that in a matter of months. And then we announced maybe yesterday or the day before that we've already done a thousand um, software updates for our customers, um, and we've only been alive for like nine months. So. So there is a massive change in the way that we deliver technology, but it's also a different way of thinking. So if you're a bank and you see our roadmap, everyone has ideas, they say. There's lots of ways to say that. (laughs) Everyone has ideas, um, but those ideas are not that important, right? Like how do you execute? How do you deliver? Um, And the way you deliver? So every neobank in the world will tell you they have an amazing sign-up process. But when you sign up with UP, just like your introduction it's somehow even more amazing. And so for us, it's not just about delivering the table stakes and then the unique features. It's about delivering a customer experience that is different than what others are doing. And the thing is, I know enough about KYC and all of this other stuff to know that it can theoretically be this seamless, that I don't have to go in, I don't have to photograph my passport, I don't have to take a picture of myself with a newspaper because I'm about to be kidnapped and they want to know what date it is or whatever it is, right? And you can see this with KYC when you sign up for, say, some of the crypto accounts and things like this. There's a lot of that very fancy KYC that goes on. And this was like, oh, 
someone, someone got it right. It was, it was the two sides of both the customer experience, but also what I know about the technology yeah. and they had aligned. Most of your customers won't know about the technology. They'll just feel like, oh, this is how it should be, right? That's right. Now, that's actually the response we get a lot. And, and it's important, like when I say we're technology-led, that's because we're an engineering team, right? But actually what that means is it doesn't mean it's not just about engineering. It's about being design-led, being design-centric, being customer-centric, um, thinking through problem-solving, um, you know, using software, using automation. Um, you know, all, all of those things and the best examples I can think of, like you hear them all the time at a conference or online if you're looking at blogs or whatever uh, or listen to podcasts, you hear all the time that, you know, Amazon have disrupted retail or Airbnb have disrupted hotels or Uber have disrupted taxis and so on. To me, there's an opportunity for te- technology companies to disrupt banking and it's happening right now. We're in the midst of it. It's really just starting. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? Introducing SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. SendPro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels, and tracks parcels. An integrated accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. SendPro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bowes brings shipping, mailing, and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more, visit pitneybowes.com au slash twista. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. We are talking to Dominic Pym, the co-founder of Neobank Up. Okay, so we have seen that it takes a long time to get a banking license in Australia, 18 months minimally. You've managed to shortcut around that by piggybacking on the licensing. You talked about this, the fifth largest bank, which is the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, right. right? So you do all, all of their mobile stuff, but you also done Up. Can you talk about how that worked and how that relationship works for you and how that allows up to do things that might be very hard for another bank to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's 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 um, it's probably uh, a little bit strange for people to get their mind around. So it's the first time it's been done like this in Australia. Probably the, the world. Like we found one bank in the UK that had a similar sort of setup, but it's quite unique and we had to spend a lot of time with the regulators, with lawyers, with compliance, with risk, with security, all the things you have to do. So even even though you weren't getting your own banking licence to do this, you kind of had to go with some, some of the hoops. Yeah, you can't call yourself a bank in Australia unless you meet the regulation and, you know, there's Section 66 of, of the Act which, you know, requires the word bank is protected, the word banking is protected, so on and so forth. So this is all a learning journey for us. But, like, to go back to the core of the question, We'd been working with Bendigo for about five years and we'd had some great success. So we took Bendigo's um, mobile customer base from 75,000 to 750,000. Um, you know, we, we probably, you know, the, the numbers are all public, um, but, you know, we probably do eight or nine billion a month and they probably have, you know, 800,000 or so monthly active users and so on. So, so it's, a, it's a significant 
platform, um, like I said, fifth largest bank, um, and the relationship with them had sort of become a relationship of trust, is that we were able to help them to innovate, help them with cultural change, help them to adopt new technologies and so on. But more than anything, Bendigo is very community-focused and customer-focused, so we delivered the best customer experience for banking in Australia. And for the last five years, we've won awards every year for the best or the second best or whatever, whether it's mobile banking, internet banking, customer service, whatever. So that that trust does take time to build. And, that, and, and over five years, we saw... Um, you know, two different managing directors, and we've now seen a couple of different, um, you know, chairpersons on the board and so on. So there's, you know, there's changes and shifts, but that relationship got solidified to the point where we had been working with some of the big banks, trying to help them as, like, say, a service provider, you know, a vendor, you know, like help them to build digital banks. And we really were frustrated because it took so long. So we're talking to Bendigo about, well, um, you know, if we went it alone, um, how, how would you get a banking license? And at the time, uh, it had been 28 years since a you know a full retail banking license had been issued in Australia. And so everybody probably remembers ING, you know, which was um, an international bank, and so it's a, sort of a different setup. So when was the last time an Australian company set up an Australian bank? It was a long time ago, and before that, it's probably like a hundred years before that. So, which, by the way, is it damning? It, it's just it tells it's you just s- what it is. But it also tells you something about the nature of banking in Australia that it is effectively static. Slow moving, very slow moving. Glacial. Glacial. Right? Yeah. Glacial, yes, yeah. exactly. Geologic time we're talking yeah. about, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so looking at that, there was no uh, regulation in Australia to get a restricted banking licence like there is now. I'll talk a little bit about that. But um, I, I, certainly myself personally, I've been looking at the UK, um, looking at um, the US, looking at other things. We, we, we had a good relationship with Simple, you know, when they, when they started um, and met with their founders and were really excited about what they were doing and, and inspired in a way, you know, by what they were doing. We also were watching what was happening in the UK and the government changed the regulations there and we saw 40, 50 neobanks launching, you know, getting licences and so on. And so it was obvious that something might happen in Australia but it wasn't obvious when. So kind of 2016 when we were having these conversations we said, if we're going to do this, we're, we're going to need to um, have three things. $100 million or more. You know, you need reserve capital, you need venture capital or you need some operational funding. So, you know, $100 million like just to get started. Uh, we need a banking licence because you can't operate a bank in Australia without one and we need a core banking system and every NEO now faces those same three challenges. So we said, you know what, we've actually integrated with and um, uh, built systems on top of core banking systems for many different banks. So for us, getting a you know cloud-hosted core banking system wasn't going to be the, the, the sort of the blocker. Right. The $100 million, it's hard to get $100 million plus dollars in Australia but we knew that we could get $100 million for this type of initiative. Um, the banking licence, much, much harder. Um, you know, the reserve capital, the compliance requirements, the time frame it takes and everything. So we, we talked with regulators but we talked with Bendigo and, we, you know, Bendigo were exceptionally brave to back a start-up team in South Melbourne. You know, this little team at the time we might have been 20, 20 people, 15 people. But, you, but you'd been working with them for been a couple working of years. With them for so a long they time. knew what they were getting. They knew what they were getting, sure, but to actually, like, take the... The, the bold step of the fifth largest bank in Australia saying, right, we're going to back this little startup. Yeah. Um, we entered into what we legally call a collaboration, you know, so it's not, um, uh, you know, we're not a subsidiary, we're not a division or anything, we're a completely independent technology company and we entered into a collaboration in order to bring up to market. It took about like a few months or whatever to sort of get um, the first version ready to roll and we started around about April 2017 and so... By um, sort of July 2017-ish, we were already um, using the software. Um, we went live in, you know, in, in test and all that sort of stuff. We went live into production onto the cloud with, with Google around about September, late August, early September uh, in 2017. And then we spent an entire year um, in an alpha, beta sort of test mode. It's 
in parallel to that, you know, the, the government and, and APRA and the regulators were working on changing the legislation in Australia so they could introduce a restricted banking licence, which, you know, probably you know the details maybe, but it re, you know, reduces the restrictions on capital, reduces the restrictions on shareholdership, uh, makes it easier as a bit of an on-ramp to sort of get started, but you're still regulated by exactly the same rules as if you're Commonwealth Bank or whatever. So, so it was a really great initiative, I think, by the regulators in order to be a catalyst for innovation. But what we've actually seen is since we did the partnership with Bendigo and we brought up into market, we started with just our own staff and we added Bendigo staff, then we added family and friends, then we did a private beta, then we did a public beta, and then we launched in October of 2018. Now, we took the regulators on that journey and now essentially that has, I guess, in some ways influenced the, the, the regulation because now all the NEOs have to go through that process where they have you know, a limit of sort of $2 million in deposits and a couple of hundred customers and all that and they have to, they've got two years to, to work through that restricted licence to get their full banking licence. Um, I'm not saying it was like strictly based on what we did, but certainly we had an influence on how that was structured because we demonstrated that it could be done over a year in a, in a, in a really um, you know, responsible way to prove that we could operate a new bank. But what you're saying is that, in fact, UP became the standard. It became the benchmark for how to bring a new bank into the market safely. I think so. I think so because um, uh, we, we achieved that outcome. And uh, and then uh, and then we announced the public launch, and then within four months we'd announced thirty thousand customers, and then within you know eight months we'd announced a hundred thousand customers. So the first step was getting um, the relationship. I was going to say getting into bed, you know, getting into the relationship with Bendigo. The second step was bringing it to market and proving that we could operate a you know a production bank that is a retail bank for real customers and comply with all the standards and all of the regulation and compliance and everything you need to do. And so it sort of did that for a year and then launched really quickly and then it's in like how do we scale? How do we get customers? How do we grow the business? How do we become profitable and so on? And that is the theme for this series of the, This Week in Startups Australia, which is scaling. So how are, you're now confronting the challenges. You're at the call face of scaling. So what's front of mind for you as the co-founder of the bank as you're scaling? Yeah, so the first the first thing for us is that we never wanted to be more than thirty people. Like we said, you're forty, we're now, for, right? nearly forty. I think yeah. we're thirty eight or thirty nine or something. We, we we set out to create a bank with less than thirty people, but we were already running the fifth largest bank. Mm-hmm. So we probably really had maybe fifteen of us, maybe twenty of us that were able to put a full time effort into doing that. Right, and and it was I would say it was ambitious. Um, you got to have you know big hairy goals, but you know we achieved it. It worked really really well. And now what we're finding is as we're scaling, there's things that you have to do. You have to grow your engineering and your design and your product competence. You also have to grow your customer support. So one of you know all of our customer support we do through the app. Of course, we have a phone number you can call and that sort of stuff. But we encourage everybody to contact us through the app, and we built technology. And the to the do youth that. these days want to contact us through <laughs> the app; right. they don't yeah. want to call. Yeah. And so what we found very quickly is you can get thousands of messages in a day. Um, and then you need to have, you know, you start with one person in support, then you have two, then you have six, then you have 12, you know, like it, 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 it goes really quick. So, so for us to, to scale the business, we look at it in three ways. We look at the engineering technology design piece, so the, you know, the product piece, and that's really my company, Ferocia. That's what we, that's what we focus on. That's what we do. Um, and that's our core competence. The second piece we look at is the operations, you know, so how do you, uh, how do you grow the business? How do you do marketing? How do you, um, how do you, uh, you know, run the back office, you know, those sort of things. And then the, and then the third part for us, is this sort of customer support and this customer scale and this customer growth, which, you know, a lot of it is engagement with customers and delivering customer service and that sort of thing. If you think about those three things, they all actually can move at different paces 
um, and you need to find a nice balance so that they can all grow together and they can grow in unison. And then you have to find out, like we've never raised a cent, so you have to find out how do you do that without raising money. We're at the point now, I'll say you know, quite openly, is that we're at the point now where we're exploring how do you grow faster um, and how do you scale those three different initiatives in unison. And for us, we think that it, it, it's probably the right time for us to start looking at um, additional partnerships, start looking at um, potentially raising capital, start looking at how do we scale our team beyond a very small team where I know everybody's name, I know their, you know, their husband or their wife or their kids or their dog. Um, you know, how do you then start scaling it to, you know, to, to a bigger team? And they're the sort of challenges that we're facing at the moment. And you know, having been in startups that are at that size, that that magic moment at 30 where you really do know everyone and then a kind of another moment at 60 where you kind of know everyone and then it it's like, who are you? I haven't seen you around yeah. before. And it, it's sad, but it's also a part of the growth, the scaling process of a successful I business. feel like 200 is the number where you start losing um, that personal touch, you know. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've been involved in teams with thousands of people and hundreds of people and whatever. I'm really passionate about keeping it to dozens if we can. We're talking to Dominic Pym. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia, and we will be right back. Developing entrepreneurial skills is at the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. UTS students are creating their own jobs and starting their own companies through the flagship program UTS Startups. Within its first year, the program has launched more than 200 student startups and they're just getting started. Equipping students with the tools and expertise to become entrepreneurs, then connecting them to industry partners and the startup ecosystem is all part of their innovative approach. UTS is connecting thousands of talented students to industry and works closely with a network of partners to match students and startups through their startup internship program. As a leading university of technology and Australia's number one young university, UTS is investing heavily in this future right now. UTS's inner city campus is also uniquely positioned in Sydney's thriving tech precinct to be the catalyst for digital and creative industries and the startup community. Join them on the journey building Australia's largest community of student entrepreneurs. Go to startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. And we're back talking to Dominic Pym, the co-founder of UpBank. So Dominic... We had Adrian from the National Payments, uh, the new payments platform, the NPP on the show, I don't know, Series 4, Series 3, and it was getting close to being rolled out. And I, I was really excited because I could see how this was going to be able to fundamentally change the way money would flow inside the country. And the Reserve Bank was behind it. The banks were all on board because the Reserve Bank made them do it. NPP rolled out. There's this thing called PayID, which the big four make just incredibly hard to, to use. You know, I have multiple bank accounts across multiple banks, and they all want me to use my mobile number, which I only have one of, as my pay ID number, which means I only have one pay ID account. 
and I have all these bank accounts and I can't move money between them. And it's like, there's little things like this. And it doesn't have to be that way because in fact, I could nominate an email address of my own choosing with UpBank to get money into my UpBank account because PayID can work like that as well. So we have this idea that we have a brand new infrastructure that could completely transform the way money moves in this country, transform payments, transform everything. And that the big four banks are making enough money off of transfers, BPAY, whatever you'd want, FPOS, that there's no financial interest in it for them to move to a rapid, very low-cost infrastructure, which is what the MPP is, pay ideas. Whereas the new banks, the neobanks, are like, yeah, let's do this. It's really great. You can move your money around. And, and I keep on having to move money into my up bank account from my regular bank account using my pay ID every time I want to top it up. It's my debit account. And my bank makes it super hard. I can't sort of save an automatic transfer or anything like this. But you can see the way that they're slow walking these technologies. You still have one of the big four that hasn't adopted Apple Pay yet. And it's become kind of a, almost a, a cause now, right? We have, by default, by agreement, by by consensus, an oligopoly with the big four banks, right? That was designed to keep the banking system stable. It probably kept the banking system very stable in 2008, so there are pluses there. The minuses are that the financial world is now undergoing the greatest innovation perhaps ever, right? This software is eating money. Software is eating the banks. And so we're now seeing that the incumbent banks, which aren't thinking about that, but are thinking about preserving their revenues, and again, classic innovator's dilemma, are now falling further and further and further and further behind the curve of what the technology is capable of, what their customers want, what you're offering customers. And, you know, that's great for you because you're going to get business as the customers peel off. On the other hand, the economy is built around the big four banks. And so for them to be in this fundamentally less and less stable position is telling us that at some point in the future, and these are very big companies, they'll move very slowly, but we're heading towards some rocks here. What does this mean? How should we start to think about the big four, not just as strategic assets for the country, but perhaps as strategic deficits? Yeah, look, it's very interesting observations. I mean, a, a lot of the neobanks overseas and in Australia will come and just bag in on the incumbents straight away, just, just go to town. And that's fine. I, I say I'm frustrated, um, and, and that's that's a fact. Um, but uh, you know, the, the positives are, for example, in Australia, we do have a fairly stable banking environment. We have, let's say, some would say a lack of innovation or a lack of competition, those sort of things. But actually, on a global scale, the big four banks here in Australia, and some of the others like obviously Bendigo, Macquarie, ING, you know, the mid tiers, um, they actually offer an enormously better level of service than some of the overseas banks do. So. We actually have a reasonably high bar to meet in Australia. I just want to lay that out first, just to make the point that any neo that wants to launch in Australia has got to do something different. Mm -hmm. Now, money flows, money flowing automatically, money flowing instantly is absolutely the future of banking. There's no doubt about it, right? It's financial services is absolutely what it is, and it's happening all over the world. Um, some countries like Japan have had it for decades. Other places like the UK have had it for years. Um, you know, Australia's just started in the last couple of years to really bring this to market and really get cracking. And yet it also has, because Swift built it, it has the world-class system that once it's proven that it works here, Swift was going to basically roll out to all the other Swift countries. So not only have we got 
a new system, but we've got the world exemplar system. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is that uh, the human behavior is changing. Like the way that we interact with technology, the way we interact with services, the way we interact with products, and the way that we live on our mobile phones, it, like humans are changing. And therefore, the way that we use money is changing. So a couple of things, observations, just like, you know, we say, how, how will it change? Well, what we've observed overseas is that people are no longer using a single bank account. So, it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still pretty young, but um, I say even in my day, um, you know, you would, have, uh, you would have one bank account and you'd have that bank for life. The reason I don't have my big four bank for life is that they wouldn't lend me money for a home loan. Like I got my first job, I wanted to get a home loan and they were very reluctant, you know, maybe I was a high risk for them or whatever it was. I saw myself as a low risk with a good job and regular income and so I changed banks. Um, so, so, you know, for me and most Australians, you're sort of sticking with one bank most of your life, probably the bank your parents had or probably the bank that you had when you were at primary school or whatever. So, so then you ask the question, what is it going to look like in the future? And we're already seeing a glimpse of that in the UK particularly because there's so many new options. We're seeing people will have a credit card with one bank, they'll have a mortgage with another bank, they'll have an overdraft with another bank, they'll have their business account with another bank and so on. So actually what we see in Australia, banking is a solved problem. You know, we don't have a lot of underbanked or, or no banked. You know, we, a lot of people are banked. And if you take the adult population and the number of bank accounts, on average, we, each adult in Australia has three bank accounts okay, with the majors. So, so, so I am perfectly normal because I have three bank that's accounts. That's it, you're perfectly age. normal. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's one way to look at it. Yeah. Right, yeah. There's lots of ways to measure normal <laughs> but in terms of bank accounts, yes. Yeah, so so, so um, what, what we're now seeing is a shift and it has started happening because we're seeing it with UP already is that say it UP, for example, right now we are still building some of the table stakes. So we don't have all of the things that the big four banks have yet, obviously. Uh, for us, there's a multi-year plan to, to achieve that sort of breadth. And so what we see is that if we don't offer a credit card, then somebody obviously has to have another bank account. If, uh, if we don't offer, say, a mortgage with an offset account, then somebody wants to put their salary into another bank account. So, so we do have thousands of customers putting their salary into UP and that is fantastic and we're privileged and we're just amazed that people would sort of take that leap of faith as an early adopter. But at the same time, we have tens of thousands of people that aren't, right? And, and so we will be rolling out breadth of product in order to make that possible. In the meantime, we're not asking anybody to switch. We're actually saying you can stick with your current bank and you can try up and see how different it is. I'll just give a couple of examples. One is that we were the first bank in Australia to offer in-app instant issuance of Apple Pay. Now, one of the majors... I am aware. You know, like, yeah, like say, we opened yeah, with that, yeah. yeah. So like say ANZ, like they've had Apple Pay for three years and if you ask them if they have instant issuance, they'll say yes. But if you try to do it, it's for a certain card and a certain product and you've got to call a call centre or you've got to use a web browser and so on and so forth. So to actually have it just instant for an inactive card that's not been shipped to you yet... Um, so that you can do it immediately in the app only. It, it's a first time. And, and, you know, we worked very closely with Apple and others to achieve that. We then were talking to Google and we want to do the same thing for Google Pay. So we became the first bank in Australia to do that. So we're the first retail cloud-hosted bank, first bank to have you know, instant Apple Pay, first bank to have instant Google. Why? Why don't the big banks have that? There's no reason why the big banks couldn't have had that. So for Pay ID, it's absolutely no difference. I, I, I see it a lot like the NBN. You know, uh, the NBN is a regulated way to take Australia into the future with high-speed internet. But it was ballsed by the government, it was ballsed by the um, incumbents, it was ballsed by the implementers, and it's costing three, four, five times as much as it was planned, it's much slower. And the, uh, NPP is no different, in, in my humble opinion. It has a great vision. I, I really like Adrian. I like what they're doing. I love the, what they're trying to do with it. But 85% of us bank with the big four banks. If the big four banks don't get on board and don't make it easy, and when I say make it easy, easy to onboard to NPP, easy to offboard. 
Easy to make an OSCO payment, easy to reverse an OSCO payment, easy to do a pay ID, easy to manage your pay ID. So, so they're not thinking like that. But when you think like that, that's the way Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, Google, these sort of companies, the way they Or think. up. Or up. Which obviously. made it super yeah, easy for me right. to use pay ID. Yeah, right. that's the thing. So I was just going to say that last piece is that um, we had to actually get an exemption from the NPPA mm. in order to issue an auto-generated pay ID. Ah, okay. And the reason we chose to do that is that we wanted everyone who signed up for UP to instantly be able to use you know, real-time payments. And some of the incumbent banks have made it very easy to get onto NPP to register your pay ID with a mobile phone number or an email address. And, and technically, you're meant to be able to do it with a mobile number, email address, or an ABN, right? Yeah, so it, it's been very difficult. So easy to get on, but very difficult to get off. So if you wanted to say you signed up with one of the incumbents and you, you put, your, like you said, your mobile phone number with them, how do you then get it off? You've got to call them up, talk to the call centre, whatever. So with up, we made it so you just flick a switch and turn it on and off instantly. So if you wanted to take your mobile number or your email address and take it to another bank, that's fine with us. And we make offboarding as easy as we make onboarding. What that does is build trust and build a relationship with you, and it's really easy. And so then in the future, if you decide to try us again or to come back or whatever, we're developing a relationship. So the big banks aren't really thinking like that. So we thought, well, hang on, most Australians now have, um, with Combank and ING were the two majors that really went hard, already have their mobile phone number set up as a pay ID with one of those two institutions. So if you sign up an account with UP, we don't have a username and password. It's linked to your mobile phone number. So how do we then give you a pay ID? We said, right, we're going to generate you a pay ID and then every Australian can have instant payments instantly. But with 85% of Australians having a big four bank account, it's difficult, it's hard to get that sort of momentum across the whole economy unless they play ball, right? And I just want to close with this. The thing is FPOS, you know, a lot of places that won't do small transactions because there's a fee associated with FPOS, whereas if they were doing pay ID, there would be no fee. Now, that would come directly out of the bank's pockets, but at the same time, a whole bunch of merchants could be open to digital payments. And so you take a look at this and you go, that is an actual space where a decision that's being made by the bank is actually having an impact Yeah, the the disruption that a real-time payment system that's low cost can have on so many different use cases from retail to services to products to infrastructure to industry, it's quite extraordinary that you wouldn't have sort of, let's say, a a more rapid adoption um, to to make it commonplace. Dominic, it has been a pleasure finding out all about UP. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. No worries at all, Mark. Thanks for having me. A strong online presence is non-negotiable in today's market. Whether it's your primary location for sales and trade, or you just want to have some key information online so people can discover your business, your website is the core of your online brand. When it comes to choosing a domain name for your website, there are now countless options of domain extensions to choose from. But if you're looking for a domain that is short, SEO-friendly, global, and truly supports your business, go with .co. .co is the domain name for innovators, entrepreneurs, startups, and creators growing their extraordinary ideas online. With more names available than other legacy namespaces, .co is for everyone who is hustling hard and building something awesome. With freebies, resources, and tools for startups available, even to those without a .co domain, check out www.go.co slash twista today and find the perfect .co domain for your big idea. .co where big ideas belong on the web.
Over the last two episodes, we've taken a deep dive into the newest face of startups in Australia, the neobanks. What we've seen is a transition point from banking as it was, which is big, solid, financially, everything that you want, just really, really stable, to something that's light and nimble and mobile and effective and fast and responsive to customers and transparent and open And it's a different story that we're hearing. And it seems that part of what we're in is a transition point between banking as it was, which was really banking by balance sheet, and banking that's becoming, which is banking that is relational, that is based on transparency, that is based on trust, that is based around relationship. And it's not clear if the big four even if they understand that, can navigate that transition. So we're heading into a period where there's going to be two sort of parallel banking systems, one growing up as another is fading. Whether the big ones eat the small ones, that's what we're going to see. A lot of these neobanks will be gobbled up by the big four as they get big enough, as as they get interesting enough, as they solve enough problems. I think companies like 86400 and up will probably remain on their own. They will be the trendsetters because they won't be weighed down by the way things were. Big thanks to twistersponsors.co, UTS Startups, and Pitney Bowes. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Winyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech, so find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Dominic Pym for taking the time to come on to our show. Last year, we rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links to all the stories. Check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with a look in a completely different direction, a startup directed to social outcomes. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 